Welcome to the EMT Pro Podcast, where we deliver relevant EMS content from the field and the classroom each week. Each episode of this podcast can get you one full hour of CE through our partner, emt-ce.com, so head over there for more information. I'm your host, Steve Williams, and with me in the studio is Dan, and remotely today is Holly. Guys, say hi. Yes, this is uh, this is different. It's different. You know, I like you, but <laughs> looking at you. It's better when we're all in the room. I know. Hey. Like across the table. <laughs> yeah. He, you switch the room around. I know. I organize and. You know Dan doesn't like change. Uh, he, that's the first yeah. thing he said when he walked through the door. Oh, boy. This isn't going to go well. Yeah. I hate change. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve has so many posters and pictures on the wall. It's just. Uh, it's so, There's actually not a single not one. a single one yeah. in the whole. Not a single one. All right, so we have a a really interesting episode today that's going to be pretty heavy, I think is the best way to describe it, um, but we have an awesome person to, to walk us through some of this stuff today. Her name is Debbie Bailey, and Dan, I'm going to let you introduce who she is, how you know her, and then uh, we'll get going and start talking to her. All right. Well, Debbie worked at a uh, high-profile NGO and was the volunteer coordinator there, and um, she and I worked uh, quite well together during um, what disaster? It was Yolanda. Uh, it was Haiti, the earthquake. Um, and then she and I went back to Haiti after Typhoon Hagupit. I can't pronounce it right. But what we did is is uh, during the first one, you know, we went over there and did search and rescue and medical stuff, and and then we ended up setting up an EMT basic course and we had a three-part EMT basic course that we sent three teams over and got the fire department all certified. And so when Hogapit came by, we went over there. They didn't even need us. Huh. So the first one, we had to send team after team after team. And then they were able to manage it themselves after after they got trained up. So that's awesome. Wow. You know, it's pretty cool, wasn't it, Debbie? Yeah. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> probably it probably the best work we've done. Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was awesome. It, it was a ton of fun. So, yeah, she yelled at me multiple times, and um, we fought like uh, husband and wife, but we love each other. She sounds pretty vicious, I'll be honest. She does sound yeah. pretty vicious, doesn't yeah. she? Yeah. <laughs> Debbie, we're, we're so happy to have you on the show today. Thank you for, for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to do this. Cool. That's awesome. I mean, the topic isn't exactly the topic we'd want to be talking about, but, uh, you know, it's just going to, we're just going to have to roll into it. Um, Debbie, you are, you are terminal with cancer and we're mm-hmm. going to discuss today, um, just basically death and dying. How should EMS providers interact with people who are dying? What's, what's good? What's not good? How are you doing? Um, just kind of help us and there's un, comfortable topic and so um if we seem very blunt with the questions because i don't know debbie and i have had very blunt conversations about this and she's very forthcoming on her on her answers so let's move right into it yeah i think debbie why don't you just kind of give us your background and your story and um maybe we'll just kind of start there and we'll pepper you with some questions and see where this thing goes Sure. All right. Yeah. So, um, just tell you like my, my cancer story so far is, um, was just having some, um, issues that at first 
my doctor and I both thought it was probably um, a menopausal thing. Um, so first time went to the doctor, just my primary doctor in the end of March. And she thought it was just a hormonal thing, but sent me in to do a um, an pelvic ultrasound. So I did that. They found some stuff there um, in there. So sent me to do a biopsy. Um, and then it was on April 15th of this year that I found that, that I had endometrial cancer, also known as uterine cancer. Um, but it has already spread and it's now in the lungs and the lymph nodes, which is very shocking to even the doctors because endometrial cancer is usually very slow moving. Mm -hmm. Um, and and most, um, most this type of cancer, it's mostly taken care of with a hysterectomy because it's very slow moving. It usually doesn't spread. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, mine had spread before they even had a chance to notice it was there. So it is terminal. It is stage four. It, um, I had a second opinion and both doctors pretty much said it's not curable. It really can't go into remission. Um, so the option of course was chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. Talked a lot about the pros and cons of chemotherapy. Just in my history of family members and friends, um, I know a lot about chemo. I've walked people through chemo. I had a brother. I lost a brother um, to cancer seven years ago and saw him go through chemo and how horrible, horrible that was. And, you know, we think that um, he may have been better off not doing chemo, but from the time of diagnosis to um, his passing was six months. And the doctor said that with chemo, he would last longer than a year. So, mm. um, so I had that experience of just being very negative about chemo. Um, and then just a couple of years ago, um, I had a boss who in his eighties was diagnosed with cancer. And I would sometimes go to his, his treatment with him and sit there with him as he's getting his, his chemo. Um, and just saw the horrible effect that it had on him. Um, so once I'm diagnosed, I'm already negative towards chemo. Mm -hmm. um, and for for me, quality of life is better than quanti quantity of life. And so after just talking to the doctors, getting all the information, seeing it, they they couldn't even tell me a prognosis. Apparently, with this type of, of cancer, it's very hard to give a prognosis of how long I have after one scan. They really can't tell how long I would have, even if I don't do any kind of treatment. Um, but reading between the lines of both doctors, it sounded like with treatment, um, I would have a couple of years. To me, a couple of years is maybe two to three years. Um, I would question the doctor on it, and they just um, wouldn't um, say yes or no. But um, each doctor, whenever they said they have 
um, they have good results and people last a couple of years with this chemo treatment. And this particular chemo treatment had a lot of side effects. Mm. Um, and then I would ask the question on how long do people usually live if they don't do treatment? And again, the answer was a couple of years. And so I'm left with whether or not I do treatment, I may at the most have three years. Of course, there's miracles that happen, and I know that. And um, I could live to, to be for five years without treatment. Or, or um, So just taking all that into consideration and talking to my family. Um, family was a, a big factor in my decision. I chose not to do any treatment because, again, quality of life is a lot better than even quantity of life. I just felt that with whatever time I have left, whether it's six months or three years, I just want to live my best life and do the things that I've wanted to do and just spend time with family and friends. Versus if I were to do treatment, I would most likely not really ever feel 100%. Um, and um, just always, just because I walked people through it, I was with people who they just never felt good enough to really do anything. As soon as my brother started treatment, he pretty much couldn't leave the house. Mm-hmm. So I know that's an extreme case of, of people on chemo, and I know people do very well on chemo. Um, but, but my choice was um, to not do chemo. Um, a big part of that is, like I said, is I've seen people go through it and it wasn't a very good, uh, good um, percentage of if it's going to help me or not. And the doctors also said, I will always be on chemo no matter how long I live. They may, I may take breaks from it for a couple of weeks or maybe a month or two, but since I could never go into remission. I would always be on some form of treatment. Um, you know, so I just took all those into consideration. Um, what also helped me through it is um, I have a faith in, in, in Christ, and I knew that he was in control of my life. Um, and I know that when I die, I get to be with Jesus. I get to be in heaven. I'm a big believer in heaven. And that's kind of the goal of, you know, of my faith. And so what better way of to just for whatever length of time I have, I get to do what I want to do here on earth. And then I get to be in heaven and I get to be with, with Jesus. But then I get to be with my family members, you know, and other um, friends um, that are in heaven. And so those were the two biggest reasons why I chose not to do um treatment was um, just my faith and um, family support. So a question for you. Uh-huh. Thank you. How, yeah. how much... Did you feel supported by your doctors and family members when you decided not to do treatment? Yes. Very supportive. Um, I ended up going with um, the, the second doctor I chose because he was very supportive of my decision. When I told him my decision, he asked why. 
Um, and so I was very open of why I chose not to do treatment. And he said, as a physician, I kind of have to want you to at least try chemo. He goes, but as a human and as a person, I'm proud of you making that decision. And that was probably the harder decision to make. And so from that point, I just felt like, you know, this doctor is very supportive of me and his staff have been very supportive of it. And you said your family was as well? Yes, very supportive. Um, you know, to the, to the point of, I think pretty much all of them said, if they were faced with the same um, fact that they didn't know what they would do. So it was very helpful to know that it wasn't an, treatment wasn't an automatic yes for my family, right. which that's what I was afraid of. People would say, well, you should at least try it. And if it, you don't like it, then get off of it. That it, um, It's so, usually an automatic, sure, I'll do treatment, but all of my family was very supportive and understood my reasoning. So what about, let's say you have uh, just friends who think, you know, they're outside the box or outside the situation. They, they, they obviously don't know what's going on. What suggestions do you have when you are talking to someone who is terminal and they've made a decision that is their own personal decision? Um, uh, let's say that they, they think you should take it. You know how easy it is for us to say, hey, you should do this, you should do that, looking in from the outside. Mm-hmm. What, what should we be saying? to the person who is terminal? I, yeah, I think, you know, at least for me is ask them the reasons why I know for me, I actually like talking to people about it because I, I want my friends and family to understand my decision. Um, and I think it's just helpful, helpful to people to know why I chose why I did because then I found that they're more they're able to be more supportive of me um you know and I and I it was okay I mean there were the the friends that at first didn't agree or questioned of why are you not at least trying it you should at least try it um but then it just gave me the opportunity to explain my reasons and pretty much all of them at the end were like, I get it. And so I think that's the biggest thing is, is ask them the reasons why they're choosing it. And hopefully they're open about it. Right. Um, and if not, at that point, it doesn't help to argue with them or try to convince them. It, there's no, nothing people could say to, to make me change my mind. So I think the best thing is just, just support them, even if you don't agree, is just, you know, love on them and just, you know, be with them as much as you can and, um, yeah, just accept their decision, mm-hmm. I think is the best thing. And that's powerful. Debbie, the, the th- one question, I don't know if it's a question more than a statement, but it'll probably lead to a question. So I'll just try and verbalize this, but I don't know about you guys, Dan and Holly, but as I'm listening to this story, I'm feeling my brain go into work mode. 
Yeah. Where, okay, this is a really hard thing to hear. I'm going to put it away in the back of my brain in a little box and not let it bother me. Um, because this is a patient, you know, that I'm dealing with and has a story that, you know, I need to be able to put to the side so I can treat them. Like I'm literally feeling my brain right. do that as we, as we listen right. to your story, Debbie. Um, and I, I, I don't know what, where I'm going with that. I'm just verbalizing it cause it's really interesting to, yeah. to not be at work, to hear a story like this and go to, and to basically telling myself, Hey, you can be present in this. You don't need to shove this one in the back. Like, right. You can be involved and yeah. mm-hmm. emotionally involved. Yeah. And Steve, I feel the same way. And I think that's where people suddenly turn into the cheerleaders. And we talked a little bit about toxic positivity this morning where it's like, Oh, instead of just being like, you look like you're having a shitty day. It's, Oh, well, great job on sleeping all night. Or, you know, people are just trying to, I think they get into that mode where it, it starts to be difficult. So then they start being overly positive and trying to encourage you. And how does that, do you feel people do that? Yes. I, I've actually had both where people are just, you're going to get through this. You're going to make it. Um, and, and honestly, I'm, I'm kind of to the point um, that I've accepted it. And I'm not, of course, I'm not looking forward to death, but I've just come to terms with it. So when people want to say, oh, a miracle can happen, or I'm going to pray for a miracle, that it's sometimes to the point where I'm like, mm, no, please don't pray for that. <laughs> pray that I'm not in pain right yeah and when it gets to the point that that I go quickly um so I have you know that realm of people that just are just so positive and they just don't want to face the reality mm-hmm. of it um to the people who they just want to know the facts how's your pain level today um but there's no questions of how are you doing? How are you doing mentally? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, yeah, I have the um, both spectrums and I, I really can't tell you which is worse. The people that are just out of touch with reality and want to be positive or the people who don't want to hear anything. They, they want to hear the facts so they can be in, informed. But it's it's hard for them to want to know, you know, how I'm doing. You know, yeah, facts are easy yeah. to put away in your brain. Right. Like, okay. Here are the facts. <laughs> right. But actually talking yeah. to you about how are you doing? Right. You know, how are you? Do you feel like you have few people in your life that actually ask those questions? How are you? Yeah, I have a really good support system, and you know, even in friends of just, you know, they will, you know every couple of days or whatever, just text, you know, just checking in. How are you doing? And it just then gives me the opportunity to give them as little or as much information, you know, that I want. But those are probably the most meaningful is, you know, people want to know how I'm doing mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think my suggestion is, I mean, even as first responders or people who you don't even know, you know, is 
people want to hear that. They, they want to share how they're doing. At least that's my experience of how I feel and others that I've watched, you know, go through cancer is, is they, they do want to talk about it. At least at my stage, you know, I want to talk about it. Who knows, you know, once I, you know, get worse, how I'm going to be feeling, but. For sure. <clears throat> yeah. So when you say talk about it, are you talking about, let's say that you and I meet professionally, right? Like I, I'm, I'm treating you as a parent, I'm a paramedic, I'm treating you for something. What is, what's the best interaction I can have with you? Because it's, you know, we, we, uh, go on dying people all the time and sometimes we're yeah. really matter of fact about it. Sometimes it's, it's real awkward. So what, what do you suggest to how, how our interaction should go? I mean, that's a, that's a good question, you know, cause I think there's a lot of, you know, what can you do as far as, yeah, I still want to be treated as a human. Um, you know, like for me, I like sharing my story. So if you were to ask me, you know, just to, to get that more, feeling like I'm a person that you really care. That's helpful. But, but then again, I don't know, you know, in that professional world, are you able to do that? Um, I guess so that would be my question back to you, but whatever you, whatever you can do is, is have empathy for that, that person. Are you able to, to ask those more personal questions of yeah. how are you doing or, you know, I feel I, like we are. Yeah, uh, the good people. Yes. Are yeah. you the ones who okay. are yeah. actively trying to do their best? I think are mm-hmm. looking for points in conversation to go beyond just vital signs and right more than a patient. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think you know asking questions of you know if it's something that you can ask them. You know, what are their plans? What are their what are they wanting to do with whatever time they have left? Um, you know, have you been able to to do the things you wanted to do? Are you were you able to see the people you wanted to see? Those those types of questions of tell me that people care. Um, you know, and ask those questions to help them. I don't know how to say that. I like when people ask me questions because it's helping them process and it's helping them understand. And it's helping them to start thinking about, wow, if I was in that situation, what would I do? Right. Because I think it, I think it just makes people just be more aware of life and what can happen. And, um, it gets them, I think it gets people out of their own, their own bubble or their own, I think it just makes life real that they have to face these things. You know, we, mm-hmm. we all, you know, know that we could get hit by a bus tomorrow, you know, those kind of things. So we all know of our mortality, but until you're really faced with it. And I've seen that in my family, I think a lot. And my close friends is it's really kind of made them think of what am I doing with my life? How can I better my life or, huh, I should start doing those things I've always wanted to do 
you know, because you always put things off. Or when I retire, I'm going to do this. So for me, it's been great to see family and friends start doing something about it, you know, about their own life of making sure they're doing, they're living the life that they want to live. I like that. That's huge. Wow. That's so extremely selfless of you to Mm -hmm. feel like you're helping other people through this and getting joy from that. Yeah. Yeah. It's been an encouragement to me. And that's why I think I like talking about it is it helps me. I mean, so there is that selfish quality in me. Is it helping me when, um, when I tell my story or tell my reasons why, and it can be like a light bulb going off of, Oh, I get it. Um, I get why you don't want to do treatment or when I explain is looking at the world today, why do I want to live in it? Um, and for people to kind of go, yeah. And not that I'm saying that the world is horrible, but it makes people, um, I think it, it encourages them, but at the same time, it encourages me. Um, and for me, I just look at the blessings or the good things that I have in my life. And, and that's definitely one of them is, I've been more free to talk to people, I feel, of just about, um, not my faith um, only, but just my other thoughts and opinions and ideas just on life in general. Um, and so, so it's been a real encouragement to me is when I get to talk to people about just my journey and my story. You know, going back just a little bit where you're talking about um, how people are starting to live their life, I'll be honest with you, your your story resonates with me because I, uh, you know, I'm retired and retiring, and I always feel like I have to be doing something. Then I, you know, when I found out that you had cancer, it's like, wow, if Debbie's got cancer, then any of us could go at any time. And I started accepting the fact that it's okay if I don't make a million dollars, right? Now I can just go yeah. do what I want to do. So it did help me as well. Exactly. Debbie, oh, good. During the good. during the course of your treatment up until this point, do you have any examples that you could share of both exceptional care that you've received for and it can be anything that comes to mind or any examples of really bad care that you've received that people could learn from as well? I I would definitely say there's not really any bad except encourage people to get the second opinion. Um, mainly because um, I went into it and, you know, the first doctor I went to, um, I mean, he, he said everything right. He did everything right. But um, it, I didn't feel cared for. I felt like I was just going to be another statistic. Um, and so I got the second opinion. That doctor said the exact same thing. There was nothing different, you know, that he saw from the scans or anything. And all of the stats or all the numbers, everything that he gave was completely the same as the first doctor. But he cared. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like when he first came into the room, he felt like, it sucks. I'm so sorry you're going through this. I don't think it's fair, you know, and he, and he kind of showed his anger towards cancer in general. Um, and that, that meant the world to me. Like, before he really said anything else, it was like, this is the doctor for me because I'm not just a patient who's eventually going to die. I'm a person that he wants to help get through it and, you know, have empathy, you know, for that person. Um, so that's what I would encourage just people is to get the second opinion because the medical diagnosis may be the same, but it's the human element and the compassion, you know, that, that made the difference for me. Um, I've just really had a really good experience. Since I chose not to do chemo, the doctor said to immediately go on hospice. Now, for me, hospice has always been the last couple of weeks, really end of life. And so, you know, at first it scared me. I'm like, wait, are you saying I don't even have six months? And, you know, he assured me that, no, no, it's mainly for the the pain management. Um, And um, so I had to think about it for a couple of weeks of just like, hospice just seems so kind of scary and this is the end. Um, But I finally went on it and I think that's the best thing is, um, you know, is it's a great team, you know, so like for me, you know, I, once you get on hospice, you get a dedicated nurse, you get a dedicated um, social worker, you get a dedicated, I think they're called like a, a medical aide. So if I need somebody to come in and do my dishes or, you know, help me do something, they'll do it. Luckily, I haven't had to utilize them yet. But this team that I have check on me, you know, every week um, just to see how I'm doing and um, for me, that's like, you know, been the best thing and just really cared for that, you know, these are people that have probably a client list and pretty much all of their clients are eventually going to pass away, but um, that they, they treat me as an individual and as a human and that they're going to do whatever it takes for me to, um, to live comfortably Um you know, as far as pain goes, and you know, that's their number one um, thing is the pain management for me. And so that's just been a very positive experience is, you know, that medical field, those people aren't all about the numbers and the stats. They care about me. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's awesome. I think hospice is like a misnomer in our field because that is the first thing we always think is, oh, hospice means you only have a few months to live. Um, right. But hospice really means you get a team to help you live a quality of life. And some people live longer on hospice than if they hadn't gone on hospice because the care yeah. is so good. And then they're so dedicated to you and what you individually need. And I love that, um, that you've had that experience so far. Yeah. I'm definitely, you know, a big believer on getting on it, you know, as quickly as, you know, you're allowed to, because I think you're right. I, I feel like in the three and a half months that I, I have been better as far as, um, 
feeling better or not having, you know, as much pain because they're involved in that pain management and they'll, um, if something's not working for me, you know, they'll give me a different medicine or they'll combine medicines or, you know, they'll work to try to get my pain level to it too. And so just as for an educational standpoint, so let's say your pain gets to be just horrible during the middle of the night. What, and you, you've tried your drugs and it doesn't work for hospice. What happens if you call 911? Well, they suggest that I call hospice first. Mm -hmm. They have doctors um, and they will try to do something over the phone, you know, like, oh, take more of this medicine or take this. Um, Or they'll actually come right out and see me, you know, not 24 hours a day. I can call them in in the middle of the night. Um, And they, um, so that's, of course, their their first choice is I call them. And they even said if if they come out, if the doctor comes out and says, yeah, I really do need um, to go to the hospital, they will go with me. Um, and so whether, even if that's having to call 911 to go with an, in an ambulance or, you know, if I drive myself to the, to the hospital, that um, the hospice doctor will go with to help explain to the ER doc, you know, you know, what's kind of going on and explain to them, you know, my diagnosis and that I'm on hospice. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and so really, and then, the, so for me, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, you know, and for me specifically, I, I do have the pulse, so I'm not really ever supposed to call 911. Um, and that's, you know, and, physicians orders for life sustaining treatment just for, Right. I don't think a pulse right. form is national. I think that's... Is it just local? Oh, really? Right. I, th- oh. I thought so. I could be wrong on that. I'll double check. Oh. You, you keep talking. I'm yeah. going to look that up while we're, um, while we're chatting. Steve has okay. a master's degree, so he should know this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and I chose that because if, I, if I'm not willing to do treatment for my cancer, why do I, you know, why would I want um, to be hooked up to machines or you know, to have, you know, you know, paramedics come in, you know, to um, sustain my life. So, um, and so that wasn't a hard decision for you at all. Not at all. Hmm. Not at all. You know, and, and actually none of these decisions were really hard for me. Part of me wonders how much of it has, have I not processed because it seemed almost, too easy to make some of these decisions. Well, um, your you decision not to get treatment. You, I, I remember when you, you what did you give yourself? One week or two weeks? And you were going to see how you felt, and you know, every day kind of keep a log mm-hmm. on how how it was. And, yeah. And then you said you got to just a few days in, and you knew then that it was you were not going to get treatment. That your decision right. was confirmed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For a week, every night, I just asked myself the question do I want to do treatment? And every night it was no. And so that was the, if it was going to change throughout that week, if some days it was yes, some days it was no, then that was just an an indication that I'm not, you know, that I need more time or something. But 
yeah, I think after even the, the third or fourth day, it was always just an automatic, no, I don't want to do treatment. So I did wait it out the full week just because, you know, I promised family that I would. But yeah, the, re- the result never, never changed. Um, quick side note, Pulse forms are state run. State run. They are, there is no national Pulse. They're all state, uh, programs, but there is a national Pulse.org website that gives you a link to each state's form. So there's that. Um, Debbie, the one thing I was thinking about, um, when you were, you know, you gave yourself a week to um, think about this and kind of decide, okay, treatment or no treatment. Um, were you, during that week, were you fielding input from your family or was it like a week just, you know, I'm going to think about this by myself for a week and then go and, and make a decision or was it, you know, were there multiple conversations that were being had? Like how did it... Uh-huh. Yeah, it seems like it was a pretty I, quick, a pretty, you, you kind of knew, but how did that process work for you? Yeah, I, I would say it was from the time that I found out that I was terminal um, to the time I made a decision was probably, I think, two and a half weeks. So I would say probably for the first two weeks, there was a lot of conversations with Mostly family, um, a few of really close friends, but it was mostly family of, and I would be honest, this is what I'm thinking, but I want your input. Um, so it was a lot of conversations um, with family. It was a lot of um, me writing, like, I'm very good at, like, I need a pro and con list. Mm-hmm. So pro of doing treatment, con of, you know, doing treatment. You know, and, and shared that, um, with the family, you know, who are interested. So a lot of conversations for the, probably those two weeks. And then when it came to probably, it was, I think five days before my deadline and I needed to make a deadline because if I didn't, I'd probably still be thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like I, I needed that deadline. So then for those like probably five days before that deadline, I really didn't talk to anybody about anything. Mm-hmm. I just, and you know, I just needed to get away and just, you know, just have that time by myself and, you know, looking at this pro and con list. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so it was a, a combination of both. And, and I did, I really took into what, you know, family was saying, but really from the beginning, they all were like, you know, they don't know what they would do. Um, you know, some of them encouraged me at least try it. Mm. And that was the hardest thing was, okay, why don't I try at least one or two treatments? And then after that, I could say, mm, it's not for me. Um, so I think out of everything, that was the hardest decision of not even try it. Mm-hmm. But man, I, I, I can't. I just think it's so amazing that you you made that choice and you stuck to it because I, I feel like most people probably would have been uh, I'll, I'll dabble with it 
and right. then I'll make my choice. And you, I just, again, I haven't had many of these conversations with people on the decisions they're making for end of life care, but I just don't think this is common. No. I, I, again, I don't have anything to back that up with. It just doesn't feel like that's what. And then when you see, when you talk yeah. to her in person, uh, it's amazing that she is, she is set on it and she's happy with the decision and she's ready to move forward. Yeah. Very awesome. admirable. Yeah. Yeah. And there hasn't, I mean, cause I'm not going to lie. I mean, there, there are days I really can't get out of bed. Um, luckily they're kind of not very often. Um, but even on my worst day, I don't have any regrets of not doing treatment. One, because I know that if I was on treatment, I'd probably be having a lot more of these really bad days. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's been, well, probably three months since I've made the decision and I haven't had any regrets of not even, you know, oh, I should have at least tried it. Mm-hmm. I just um, feel very confident in my decision. Right, good for you. That's awesome. Um, you know, one of the, the last things I have on our list of things, and we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but, you know, we as EMS providers constantly, not constantly, that's not the right word, um, routinely go out to homes where when we're pulling up our CAD notes of what the dispatchers have typed in about the call, we'll see in there that this patient's on hospice. And like Dan alluded to, it really makes us feel like, uh-oh, we don't want to step on anyone's toes. Um, but the thing that I'm kind of hearing from you is we should be more concerned with, okay, obviously make sure hospice is involved when you get there so that they're aware of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And don't make any um, transport decisions until you've at least touched right. base with them. Um, but really... I don't know. I, I see it as kind of an honor that we get to be there in the, you know, hmm. final days, yeah. weeks, months, um, that we're even called to that because usually we're not going to, to see that. Usually it's, you know, hospice is going to be there until the end and we're never even, you know, brought into the mix. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, that, this, this, ch- I'm just saying this, this conversation has changed my opinion on getting dispatched to those calls. That's, yeah. Interesting. And I find There's it, also this fear that if we transport someone on hospice, it's going to kick them out of hospice. Right. You know, and then speak to that? now we're making I've their... I've heard that before, but yeah. so why? Yeah. That's not true? My, my understanding <laughs> as far as why they don't want us to call 911 is has nothing to do with whether or not hospice would agree or disagree or I would be kicked out. It all has to do with insurance. Hmm. That if I'm on hospice and I call 911 or I go to the ER, um, insurance isn't going to pay for any of those things. And so, um, so I, I think, and I could be wrong, but what hospice has, has explained to me is they would be okay if I went to the hospital or they'd be okay if I had to call 911 or go to my primary doctor for anything, but it's all the insurance. It all okay. has to do with insurance, won't pay for stuff. And so 
Um, I don't think it's true that that would kick me off of hospice. Like they've never told me anything about how I'd be kicked off hospice. Being on hospice is 100% my decision whether to be on it or get off of it. And it sounds like, though, as long as we're involving a hospice nurse or a physician and they're saying, yeah, you know, transport's the right idea in this case, whatever that case is, Mm -hmm. then we're going to be fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm thinking as well. And usually those those conversations come up with family. Family is not ready to accept it. Uh, the patient yeah, is. I've been on a few of those scenes. Yeah. Right. And those are tough. Yeah. Right. When you're dealing with both sides of it. Yeah. And that's where it's best to get the hospice people involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's yeah. where documentation is so huge because, you know, when you're being confronted with people who are running on 100% emotion, mm-hmm. you know, you're able to look at documentation and say, hey, you know, when they were of, you know, sound mind and judgment skills, this is what they, this is what they wanted and mm-hmm. we have to honor that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tough stuff. Um, yeah. And I think, I think my, my best advice to give you is when you guys are in that situation and I've talked to some other friends who, you know, have had been on hospice, but, um, paramedics have come is don't be afraid to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. Um, because in, in my experience and what I've heard, it's worse when people don't do anything. I would, I would rather have somebody say the wrong thing than to say nothing at all. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, that goes even to like the family members that are there, you know, that you may, I don't know what to say to the family member who's, you know, because you can't do anything and they're watching their loved one, you know, possibly pass away is just say something, um, you know, and that's because that's what I've just heard is, um, and that, that's my experience too. It's worse when people don't say anything. Um, it would almost be so, best to say, wow, you know, I really don't know what to say here. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm just being, you know, honest of like, yeah, this sucks. I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm sorry I can't do anything or I don't know what to say. Um, is better than just nothing. Because they'll remember that. Or the old standby of, let me know if you need anything because maybe you don't know what you need. Maybe you just need someone to show up and cook with you for 30 minutes or bring you a meal. Right. And most people aren't going to reach out and, make a spreadsheet of all the stuff they want people to do for them. <laughs> right. Um, right. So just take some action. Just do something. Yeah. Is that what you're exactly. saying? Yeah. Do something, say something, just mm-hmm. show up. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Debbie, I just want to say thank you for your openness and your transparency with this. I know that, um, I know getting to the point where you were comfortable talking about it was not an easy journey, but you sure make it sound a lot easier than I would assume it would be, but thank you for, again, just being willing to, to share this information with us because people don't, in our, especially in our line of work, we don't really get to deal with it until we're in those final moments and we're probably hearing it from it from family. You right. know? Um, mm-hmm. But it's yeah. so beneficial to hear from the, the patient. Yeah. Uh, we're not taught that in school. Yeah. No, we're not. 
or really not. Hmm. But. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for for inviting me to do it. And when Dan asked me about this a couple weeks ago, at first I was like, uh, why? But then I was like honored, you know, that people cared and, um, you know, and hopefully it is helpful to anybody who's listening to this, that there's, you know, little nuggets in there that, you know, may be helpful because honestly, that's what I want to do, you know, with the time that I have left is Mm -hmm. to help people. You know, my whole pretty much professional career has been helping people, you know, and it's like, Mm -hmm. I want to help people, whether that's just a small part of understanding or having them look at themselves and, you know, um, you know, that's what I want to do. So, um, thank you for, um, letting me share my story and, um, and I do hope that it helps somebody out there. Absolutely. Well, it's helped us. That's for sure. (laughs) Well, Debbie, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And, um, I I know that there's going to be a lot of people that get a, uh, a lot out of this. And, um, again, it's only possible because someone like yourself is willing to, to share their story. And, um, it's just been, it's been really awesome. So thank you. Thank you. All right. We'll leave it there and, uh, we'll catch you guys on the next one.